This morning we're looking at the, at the whole series of looking at the Son of God and how Christ's life impacts us, the life of Jesus in you, the life of Jesus in me. If you have a Bible this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 4. I hope you brought a Bible. You'll need a Bible. If not, get your phone out, find an app, uh, get that smart uh, thing going, and you can find a, a Bible app on that. But uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to look over at James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. We're looking at the temptation of Christ, the, the facing temptation. What's your greatest temptation? I was uh, online this week, and, and I just typed in uh, facing temptation, and, and here's what came up. Here's an ad. It says, creamy, buttery, caramel, melted, dropped by spoons full onto large pecan pieces, then covered with dark chocolate. I, I didn't have my credit card. I was going to... It's no sin to be tempted, but we're tempted in a lot of different ways. And for some of you, dark chocolate and almonds and caramel may not tempt you. Maybe for some of you, it's sushi. For maybe some of you, it's ribs. Maybe for some of you, it's not even food. Maybe it's something else. But there's something in our life that tempts us. And somewhere along the line, we've come to believe that the temptation is sin, and it's not. And there are many serious temptations. But Jesus had the most intense temptation ever. And we're going to look at that today. And it, it, it followed immediately after his baptism. Last week we were looking at the baptism of Christ and what happened when he came from the water. And this temptation is essential to our spiritual growth, our spiritual health. Look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. Look at the verse up here. It says, because he, that's Jesus Christ, because he, Christ, himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That next time when you run across a temptation, the next time that you are tempted, you can go back to the temptation of Christ and it, and it changes you, it impacts you. How does Christ's temptation impact me? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Let's look at that. We're going to look at two things. No, number one, or the first one, what makes Jesus' temptation unique? What, why was his so unique? Why was his so intense? Why was his so, uh, so much out of the ordinary? And looking again at the, at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. Notice that. It was voluntary. He was led. He was not coerced. He was not forced. But he was led by the, the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. The good news is, is that we know for sure where the temptation came from. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights. If you go to Mark, if you go to Luke, you will find not only was he fasting for 40 days, he was tempted the whole time. And just so you know that he wasn't doing a typical Jewish fast, which would be only from daylight hours, it says that he was fasting 40 days and 40 nights, 40 days with no food. It says he was hungry. Verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Does that strike you as somewhat strange that Satan is quoting Jesus to Jesus? He's quoting God to God? Because he's quoting what God said in the Old Testament in Psalm 91, I believe. He's quoting that to Jesus. And look what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God 
to the test. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of, of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and get this, and angels came and, men, and attended him or ministered to him. What makes Jesus' temptation so unique? Why was it so intense? Well, the first thing is that Jesus was temp tempted or tested physically. After a spiritual high, he had just come from the baptism. The, the Father says, uh, the, literally says that the sky is torn apart, and the Father says, this is my Son, the one who, in whom I'm well pleased, the one in whom all desire is focused. And he comes from this spiritual high, and then he goes into a spiritual test. Uh, let me just say, for us, that's something that we can learn from. When you're on a spiritual high, you come back from women's retreat, you come back from, from a, a class where you've really learned a lot, and you realize that the Lord is teaching you something, beware, because you will be tempted at that point. The baptismal waters were barely dry, and, and Jesus was led voluntarily into the wilderness, into the desert. And he was temp tempted. The Greek word there is pierza. Pierza is, is a very unique word because it can be used positively and it can, use be, can, use be, can be used negatively. There are times when it's used in a very positive sense. If you're tested in the positive sense, it's revealing character. It's, it's testing to see how much you know. It's the same word, pierza, would be the same word that would be used in a, in a test at school when you're given that exam to see how much you know. It's not designed to trip you up. Well... Some of the tests I took in school were designed to trip me up, but most of the good tests were there to find out what I knew. It's used this way in, in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham gets word from God that he's supposed to take Isaac, his only son. It says that God tested Abraham. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the same word, piedza. The piedza at that point is, is that God is saying to Abraham, I'm not trying to trip you up. I want to see where your heart is. It's revealing that character. In a negative sense, it is solicitation to evil. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are there. They're in the Garden of Eden. They've been created by God, and they have all of the food, everything they could possibly want. There are no worms in the apples. There's no bugs on the peaches. There's, there's no thorns and no weeds to deal with. They have this perfect, idyllic situation. And Adam has all the food he can possibly have, and God says, I want you to not eat from this one tree. And so guess what Satan says? Did God really say? That's not a question to check his character. That's a solicitation to evil. And Jesus was there with Satan under the solicitation. I, I want you to also understand God can use the worst situation, the worst test the worst temptation ever, and still bring good out of it. Because in the same book, in Genesis chapter 50, you remember Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. They were first going to kill him, and then they put him in a pit, and then they sold him into slavery. And Joseph goes to Egypt. He rises to, to be second in command in Egypt, and he saves Israel by having food when they need it. L eventually, Joseph and his brothers are reunited and in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, the brothers come to him and they say, Dad is dead, and Dad told us before he died that you're not supposed to do anything bad to us. Don't you love the sibling rivalry going on there? This is what Dad said. And Joseph replies, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good 
to save many lives. No matter what the temptation, physical or otherwise, God can use that temptation to develop that character, to to mature us, to grow us. And even when Satan is soliciting us to evil, it is a time when we can shine for Jesus Christ. I think we forget that. Adam was tested when he was full. Jesus was tested when he was starved. And, And it's one thing to face a test when you're physically strong. It's another to face a test when you're exhausted, you're you're starving, you haven't eaten for 40 days. I can't imagine that personally. Luke chapter 4 verse 2 actually uses a double negative. It says, he did not eat nothing. That's what it says in the Greek. He did not eat nothing. My mom always told me two negatives make a positive, but not in Greek. It's just emphasizing there was no food, any time for him. I I just can't imagine going 40 days. I can't imagine going four hours without eating. I mean, I eat a snack in the morning, I eat a snack in the afternoon. Lord of the Rings, there's the one point where I I think it's Bilbo the Hobbit says that he's hungry. He said, we had breakfast an hour and a half ago. And he says, it's time for the morning snack. And and they keep going. And he says over his shoulders, do they know about 11 seeds? Do they know about tea? Do they know? And it turns out that he eats eight meals a day. Praise God, that's my kind of guy. 40 days without food. And we also miss what Satan is saying because in the Greek, there are different ways of saying if. He says, if you are the son of God, it's a first class conditional clause, which doesn't mean a lot to you. But he's saying, if, and for the sake of argument, I'm going to assume that you are. He's not questioning whether Jesus is is the son of God because Satan knew that Jesus was the son of God. He's not questioning that. What he's tempting Jesus to do is to use his powers in an inappropriate way. He's to use something that actually is due him for the wrong reason at the wrong time. He's he's tempting Jesus to use his sonship in a way inconsistent with his God-ordained mission, would be another way to say it. Is providing food for a hungry person sin? In Matthew 14, Jesus feeds the 5,000 men and their families with five loaves and two fishes. And in Matthew 15, he, he takes another, just a little bit of food, and he feeds 4,000 men and their families. Jesus was all about providing food. It was not that. When the, when the children of Israel were in the, in the desert, every morning they came out and there was manna. What is it? He gave them bagels in the morning. And he, had, and he provided food for them every day. It's not about whether it was right to have food. And so many times when we're physically tested, when we're tempted, it's not about what we think it is. It's are we using God-given abilities and talents and gifts in a way that's appropriate for the Lord. And what does Jesus do? He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 to Satan. In Gethsemane, Jesus is once again tested, I believe, directly by Satan, and it says that he was exhausted. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 44, it says, And being in in anguish, Jesus, that's he again, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Literally, the capillaries in in his face and in his body began to burst from the stress he was under. He was exhausted. He knew he was going to the cross. It was beyond his comprehension. Jesus was tested physically like you and I will never be tested physically. Here's the second one. Jesus was tested mentally. He was tested mentally. Max Lucado wrote a book called Next Door Savior. And in his book, when he's talking about the temptation of Christ, this is what he says. The wilderness of the desert 
parched ground, sharp rocks, shifting sand, burning sun, thorns that cut. Now imagine yourself, you're in the desert, there's parched ground, there's sharp rocks, there's shifting sand, there's burning sun, there's thorns that cut, there's a miraging oasis. You see an oasis and it's just a mirage. Wavy horizons ever beyond reach. This is the wilderness of the desert. There's a wilderness of the soul. Parched promises. Sharp words. Shifting commitments. Burning anger. Rejections that cut. Hope that is just a mirage. Distant solutions ever beyond reach. This is the wilderness of the soul. Some of you know the first. All of you know the second. Jesus, however, knew both. When he was tempted mentally, he was taken to the highest peak, the highest pinnacle of the temple. The temple mount is still there in Israel, in Jerusalem. I've been there three times. Lord willing, we're going to go again next March. We'd love for you to come and be a part of that. And this last time, they have just dug up a piece of the, of the pinnacle of the temple. It wasn't on the, the temple itself. It was actually on the wall around the temple mount. And the, the word for pinnacle in Greek is terugian. Terugian literally means on the edge of the wing, the highest part of, of that which you can get, the, the little wing, the edge, the very tip of the wing. And on this rock, on this stone that was carved out at the time of Christ, it mentions the word Terugian, and, and it was on the southwest corner of the Temple Mount, and it fell off. It was knocked off when Jerusalem was overrun in 70 A.D., and they have found it, and there's an inscription, and what it says is, the priest comes here to scan the sky each day looking for the Messiah. So he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, to the corner of the temple where the priest was supposed to come and look for the Messiah, and here he is, Messiah, standing on this high mount over a hundred feet in the air where everyone could see him. And he quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, but he leaves out just a little bit because he leaves out the context. He takes a couple of phrases, he takes a couple of sentences out of context, and he says, doesn't the Lord say that he will take care of you if you jumped off here? He's playing mental games with Jesus. He's misapplying it. Have you ever had somebody play mental games with you? My brother Jim is uh, 13 months older than I. He's 6'5", 6'5 and a half when he was younger. 6'5", he was a great basketball player. And when we were growing up, Jim was always having the other brothers. I'm one of five boys. He would have us come out and play basketball with us and just kill us, just drill us. He was so, I mean, he could dunk the ball. He could do, he could hit any shot except one shot. He could not hit a half-court shot directly on to the basket. And my little brother David, two years younger than I, realized this. And so David went out night after night after night, and he learned to sink the, the half-court shot directly onto the basket, not from either side, directly onto the basket. And I watched David do this 10 times in a row. And then he called Jim out and said, let's play horse, you know, where you can pick where you do it. And the first shot, he goes half-court, hits it, Jim can't hit it. He does a second shot, hits it, Jim can't do it. Third shot, he hits it, Jim can't do it. Fourth shot, he hits it, and Jim can't do it. And I'm thinking, yes, my brother's finally going to go down. And then Jim said this, David, 
I know you've hit this four times in a row, but I don't think, I, I know you can probably do it five times, but I'm not sure any human being could actually do it five times. Now watch out when you do that. Be sure that you come off the right foot and, and hold your hands just right. And the whole time David is getting ready for the shot, Jim is just, just getting, just rattling his cage. David could not hit that fifth shot. Jim hit five other shots and David lost. Why? He was mentally he was just playing with him. He was tempting him. He was testing him mentally. Jesus said, I will never test the Father. Because he saw what happened when Israel did the same thing, playing mental games. Have you ever played mental games with God? God, if you'll just do this, if you will, you know, and, and I'm going to test you, God. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 2, it tells a story of when Israel was in the wilderness. In Exodus 17, 2, it looks a little bit like this. As, so they quarreled with Moses, that's the children of Israel, and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? And then look at that last line. Why do you put the Lord to the test? Have you ever tested, have you ever tempted the Lord that way? Here's what kind of blows my mind. I'd never thought about this before. When Jesus is standing 100 plus feet in the air, on that place where it says the priest was looking for the Messiah and Satan is testing him, which would have been more dangerous for him, to step off the edge of the temple or to stay there? Well, for me, if I'm 100 feet in the air and I step off the edge, guess what? It's 200 pounds of, of really ugliness when it hits the concrete. When it hits the, when it hits the stones on the road just below that, it would be really nasty looking but I began to realize, because in Matthew 26, 53, Peter comes to the Lord, and the Lord has said to him, Peter, you're going to deny me. And he says, Lord, I'll never deny you. And, and Jesus tells Peter, I'm going to go to the cross. And Peter says, Lord, you can't go to the cross. And this is what he says to Peter. Do you, not, do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? For Jesus to jump off of that edge of that temple was not dangerous in the least bit because he was going to die on the cross for us. No matter what happened, Jesus was not going to die that day coming off of the temple. God would have saved him, but it was not God's plan for him to be on that temple to step off of that, and it was not God's plan for Jesus to say yes to Satan in anything. Because the truth is, for Jesus to stay and not jump off meant that he went to the cross. It was much more dangerous for Jesus to not jump than to jump. You understand what I'm saying? Because for him to not jump meant he was going to be beaten and sacrificed and crucified for you and for me. Jesus was tested mentally. He was tested physically. And the third one is he was tested spiritually. Jesus is then taken to a high mountain. We don't know which mountain. Uh, there are a lot of speculation. If you read commentaries, some of them will say it was Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon rises in the northern part of Israel, 9,230 feet. There are actually places where the snow never melts. It's like Mount Shasta. There are glaciers there that have been there literally for hundreds if not thousands of years. And the snow was there on, on Mount Hermon. Maybe it was Mount Nebo, that's also known as Mount Pisgah, because that's where God took Moses to, to look into Israel, to look into Canaan when Moses didn't go across the Jordan River. 
We don't know what mountain it was. And the truth is, it doesn't ma matter. Jesus has taken the place, and all of the kingdoms and all of their glory, all of their splendor, not with all of their problems, not with all of their sinfulness, not with all of the crime, not with all of the, the underhandedness that we have from every kingdom, not any of that was paraded. Just the goodness of the kingdom is paraded before Jesus. And again, as I was reading and studying for this, it dawned on me, did Satan have the authority to, give, to make that offer? That would be like, if you come, I will write you a check for a million dollars. Now, I could write you a check for a million dollars. I, I absolutely could write you a check for a million dollars. There's only one problem. You couldn't cash it. You could try, but it's not going to happen. In fact, if it's more than just a couple hundred dollars, you couldn't cash it. It's not going to happen. Did he have the authority? Let me let you in on a secret, okay? Don't tell anybody else this, okay? Satan is a liar. He lies all the time. He loves to lie. In fact, in John chapter uh, 8, verse 44, it says, When he, that Satan, lies, he speaks his native language. He is a liar and the father of lies. So whether he had the authority to do this or not, we don't know because he's a liar. He would have said that he had the authority whether he did or not. But the point is that he didn't need to have the authority because in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, it says of the Messiah, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. In Revelation, we go to Revelation 11, verse 15, it says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Only God is to be worshipped. The God part of Jesus would never have done this. But at the end of 40 days, the, the exhaustion, the, the, the fatigue, the hunger, everything else, knowing that he could have the kingdoms that were rightfully his, that were promised to him, that he created from the beginning of time, they already belonged to him. There had to be some part of the human part of him that said, this would be so easy just to take what's already mine. By the way, the same wording that Satan uses is the same wording that's used of the Magi when they came in to see Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. It says the Magi came and they worshipped him. They gave him all the reverence, all, all the honor, all the glory, everything that was due him. The thing that we learn about Jesus' temptation and what makes them unique is that he was tested physically and mentally and spiritually. Folks, that's what we need to understand, that that's how we may be tested. But there's one other part, and I know we don't have a lot of time, but I want to go to, to the book of James, the book of James chapter 1. The book of James chapter 1. Because there's some very practical things, two things that we learn about this. What makes Jesus' temptation beneficial? What makes his temptation beneficial. Look at James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God may test your character. He will never solicit you to do evil. God may test who you are and where you are in your spiritual walk. He will never lead you to do something wrong. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he, by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. 
He chose to give us birth, how? Through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Why is it so beneficial? Well, first of all, we see how Jesus was tempted and how he answered. Each time it was with the word. Jesus' temptation and, and all that he went through, they demonstrate that I can trust God's word. I can trust God's word. Number one, if you're following along in your, in your notes, what is our most powerful tool? It's God's word. And I think it's interesting that Jesus quoted it. He quoted it. Why? Because he wrote it and he knew it. But you know what? There are times that people will ask you a question and you may not have a Bible. You may not even have your Bible app up. There needs to be a time when you have God's Word. Not just that you know it, that you've read it, but that you know it and you use it. It becomes real to you. Psalm 119.11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If Jesus used the Bible when tempted, what makes me think I shouldn't? If that was the most powerful tool against Satan, why would I think that I could have something that's better than that? In John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus is speaking to the Jews who had believed him in him. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Folks, if you want to be the person that defeats temptation, you need to be a person of this book. You need to be a man or a woman of this book. This is God's Word. This is what you need to put into your life. What does the Bible teach me? If you're taking notes, I want you to write down three words. When, what, and how. Write those three questions down. When, what, and how. What does the Bible teach me? It teaches you when. It identifies when you are vulnerable. It helps us learn when there's, there are things in our life that need, we need to watch for. Matthew 26, 41 says, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Watch and pray. What is it? When, when is it that you're tempted? I've already said that food is one of my big deals. When I go to a kitchen, it's a dangerous thing. My wife loves to bake. It's a match made in heaven. She loves to bake, and I love to eat what she bakes. It's a temptation. She was making cupcakes for the women's ministry, and she said, do you want one? I said, I will be strong. Get them out of my sight. Take them to the women's thing on Friday night. They played bunko. They had a great time. And lo and behold, she brought chocolate cake home. It's no longer with us. <laughs> Maybe it's a kitchen. Maybe it's a computer. Maybe it's a TV. You're seeing things that you know you shouldn't see. Maybe you need to move your computer, your TV, where other people can see it, where they know what's happening. Maybe it's the mall. Maybe you love to shop more than you should. When? What? Plan what you're not going to do. Plan what you are not going to do. You know, so many times we plan on what we are going to do, but you need to know for sure up front what you're not going to do when you're tempted. Uh, again, Proverbs 4, 26 and 27 says, Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. You have to plan what you're not going to do. You have to plan that you're not going to eat. You have to plan that you're not going to watch that. You have to plan that you're going to do these things, that you're going to do something else, and you have to plan what you're not going to do. If you get, get my drift. 
And then how. Learn how to guard your heart. Identify when you're vulnerable. Plan what you're not going to do. And learn how to guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Why James focus on desire? Why did he say it's when desire comes and you see that desire and you have that desire and it entices you and then what does it end up doing? It drags you away to sin and sin eventually erupts into death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. Do you understand that we have to guard our heart? Our heart is foolish. Our heart can be led down paths that it should not go. Kathy's birthday was in February. I know that she loves C's candy. I went in to get her C's candy, and I said in my mind, this is what I am not going to do. They will have C's candy there, and I know I love C's candy, but as long as I don't look at it, as long as I don't plan to buy it, I will be okay. I will guard my heart. You know they give you one of those free things when you come in. And guess what it was? Pecan and caramel and dark chocolate. And she said, would you like one of those? And my mouth said before I even thought, no, I'd like ten. But I only bought two. And I ate them. You have to guard your heart. You have to guard your heart. You don't resist. You replace. You refocus. Get that. You don't just resist. You don't just say, I'm going to, I'm just by willpower, I'm going to resist this. No, you replace it. You refocus that. You, you change the way you look at that. And maybe it's the people you hang out with. Our, my kids got tired of me quoting 1 Corinthians 15, 33, bad company corrupts good character. Sometimes it's the people you hang with. Maybe you need to change that. But whatever it is, it's the when and the what and the how. You need to understand that. That's what God's Word will do. It's a practical tool for you. Here's the second part. All of Christ's temptations demonstrate that I can trust God's work. That I can trust God's work. Not just his word, but what he's already done for us. Folks, look at me for just a second. Here's the thing. All of this starts with a cross. All of what Jesus was tempted was about him not going to the cross. About getting off God's plan. What Jesus Christ did on the cross changes everything. He died in my place. He died in your place to take every sin that any of us has ever committed. He died in our place. And you can't trust in being good enough. You can't trust in in working hard enough. You can't trust in resisting temptation enough. You can't trust in that. You have to trust in the cross. And it's bloody, and it's nasty, and it's horrible, and it's essential because Christ dying on the cross is the difference between me going to hell and to heaven for eternity. I don't know how much plainer I can make it. And it's the only way that you can escape what we deserve. And we all deserve to spend eternity separated from God. Beyond that... Once we have taken, and by, and by faith we've trusted him, we can trust that he has the answer not only for that, but for everything. And when you need the answer, he says, we can pray, we can ask for help. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you can ask of God. In verse 18, it says, we are the kind of first fruits that he created. He created us. We're not our own. 
God's done a work in each believer to enable us to do what we could not do before. He promises he will not stop until we're complete. He's provided the answer. We must trust him and not try to do it in our own strength. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Anytime you've ever beaten temptation, it's not because of you. It's because Christ in you. It's the Holy Spirit in you. It's his power in you. We need to understand that. He understands what we're going through. And he says, I have given you the way out. And the way out is Jesus Christ. The way out is coming to him. The way out is trusting him. And he's given us one other thing. Given us one tremendous asset. Did you notice that he says in James chapter 1, verse 18, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created? The reason that I think that Jesus' temptation is unique from anything else is that he had no peers. The disciples didn't go with him on the temptation. John the Baptist wasn't there. The Father was with him, the Holy Spirit was with him, but he had no peers on this earth. He had no friends. He had no one to come alongside him. He had no one to prop him up. He had no one to be with him. In my office, I have a, a, a picture. It's it, People are rowing together. It says two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his, his friend can help him. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Folks, let me close with this. We can trust his word and we can trust his work. And part of the work that he has done is to give us people to come alongside us to be there for us. I have been so blessed. I grew up in a Christian home. My father was a pastor. My, my father-in-law was a missionary. I, I have been so blessed. I, I was going to go to the university. And I ended up going to Bible college for all the wrong reasons. And I found that that's where the Lord wanted me. And there I met and married my best friend, Kathy. She's been by my side. She is always there. She listens. She supports. She prays. She's been such an asset. I have been so blessed because through my lifetime, I have had time after time after time where I have rubbed shoulders with pastors who come alongside me and, and we're as iron sharpening iron because they come along and they make me better. When I was first coming out of Boys Ranch, we went to a church, Southwest Baptist Church in Amarillo, and there was a young pastor there by the name of Larry Lamb. 32, 33 years ago, Larry Lamb and I became really good friends, and for all of these years, we have texted, we have called, we have emailed, we have kept up with each other. When he was down, I would lift him up. When I was down, he would lift me up. When we went to Upland, there was a pastor there by the name of Jerry Westcott. Eight years ago, on Monday, he passed away, 66 years of age. But for a dozen years, Jerry Westcott, what a blessing he was to me. I've been so blessed. I've had a pastor here in Reading by the name of Stace Rolofson for seven years. Once a month on, on a Tuesday morning, we would go to McDonald's. I'm amazed that we didn't get thrown out because we stayed way past 30 minutes. But Stace Rolofson and I, we would meet and we would pray. We would, I would pray for his church. He would pray for my church. I would pray for his family. He would pray for my family. 
I've been so blessed. I've had coworkers here. I've had deacons and teachers and friends, and I've been so blessed. Do you understand? God puts us in a community. He puts us in a body. He wants us to lift each other up, to know his word, to know his work. Would you bow for prayer? What an amazing God you are, Father. The truth is, Father, we have failed time after time. Jesus never once fails in 40 days of temptation. Not just the three that we know about, but maybe the thousands that he faced in those 40 days. Father never failed when it came to the cross, even in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed, not my will, but your will. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, we can't even begin to understand the impact on our life, and yet we still fail because we're trying to do it in our own strength in all the wrong ways. So come into our hearts, Father. Purify us, cleanse us, heal us, strengthen us. Help us to know, Father, what it is that you would have us to do and what you'd have us to be. Father, if there's one person here today who has never acknowledged what you did on the cross, they've never trusted you for their salvation, today, may they do that. We need you, Father. We love you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand together? We're going to sing a closing song. If you have a spiritual need, you can come and sit. There's a row of chairs right down here. You can come and sit in any of these chairs and one of the deacons, one of their wives will come and they will sit and pray with you. Love to help you out spiritually. Here's the, the, the thing. God is able to do what we cannot do. Let's sing and praise him this, today as we finish up.